Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I, uh, I follow a lot of show business news, so you don't have to. I don't know if you noticed one of the uh, more noteworthy showbiz stories this week was the announcement by the Walt Disney Company, and here I must uh, do a disclosure. I work for them ever since uh, they bought the company that makes The Simpsons. I work for them. Um, and they announced this week, um, I don't think this was the first time they'd made this public, but it's, it drew more attention, I think, this week, that they are making a live-action version, motion picture version, of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Dwarves. And the story made news in the showbiz sector of the media, at least, for the fact that uh, some folks have raised a collective eyebrow about that that decision. Um, In response to the raised collective eyebrow, the Disney company said that they were going to consult with some folks. Now, I wasn't on that list, even though they have my number, but they did say they were going to consult with members of the, quote, dwarfism community, unquote. Yeah, I'm just letting that sink in for a moment. All the possibilities. There are, yes, there are um, nonprofit organizations that exist to help members of that community, and I guess they'll give their advice to the Disney people. As I say, I wasn't asked. I was told a couple of uh, years ago now, almost, that um, I was no longer going to be I was told by the duly appointed representatives of the Disney Company that I wasn't going to be um, doing the voice of a certain character on that TV show aforementioned because uh, we don't ha- share the same ethnicity. So I, I feel I, I at least have some standing to offer the Disney Company at no additional cost. My uh, my analysis of the situation, which is simply this. If you're going to make a live-action movie about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I strongly, strongly urge you to limit your casting choices of the title characters to actual dwarves. Don't, you don't have to thank me. That's just... I just wish you the best. And if you believe that, I got a bridge. Ladies and gentlemen, turning to a totally different subject, the Catalan Regional Parliament, this is in Spain. There's a region of Spain called Catalonia. They uh, tried to make faint toward um, separatism, and that was slapped down a couple years ago. That's the last time we heard from them. Now their regional parliament has formerly pardoned hundreds of women executed for witchcraft between the 15th and the 18th centuries, according to the BBC. MPs, members of parliament, passed a resolution by a large majority to rehabilitate the memory of more than 700 women who were tortured and put to death. I'm sure they'll be relieved. Spanish historians have discovered that Catalonia was one of the first regions in Europe to carry out witch hunts, and they weren't targeting Donald Trump. 
It also was considered one of the worst areas for executions. Quote, we've recently discovered the names of more than 700 women who were persecuted, tortured, and executed between the 15th and 18th centuries, said the groups behind the resolution. Witches were often blamed for the sudden deaths of children or for poor harvests. According to a professor of modern history at the University of Barcelona, pro-independence and left-wing groups in Catalonia said the women were victims of misogynistic persecution, want their memory, memories honored by naming streets after them. Speaking from an area which is right in the middle of renaming streets, I can understand. Tens of thousands, mostly women, are believed to have been condemned to death for witchcraft across Europe. And while it sounds like good news, I got to be the bird in the punch bowl and point out no mention of warlocks. Hello, welcome to the show.
From New Orleans, Louisiana, I think we have witches here. I don't know. Um, I, if so, I pardon them. By the way, pardoning was in the news this week um, because as of Saturday night, Donald Trump, I don't say the whole name anymore, um, held a rally at which he promised if he ran and if he won re-election as president, he would pardon anybody who was convicted of anything bad on January 6th of last year. And you know, when he promises something, you can take that to the bank. Unfortunately, it's Deutsche Bank. And now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Eversall III. It's uh, only a few days away now, ladies and gentlemen. But unlike any games in recent memory... The nearly 20 official international and national Olympic sponsors are laying low, ducking the press and viewers by holding back on the advertising blitz that typically kicks off months ahead of the Olympics. By Wednesday of this week, only two spots had launched commercials, both of which focus on the athletes with no mention of the host country. Corporate sponsors and advertisers for the Beijing Olympics have come under fire for what human rights groups say is the enabling of China's alleged abuses, this is from Reuters, against Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in the country. Those allegations are denied by China. The halo is tarnished, says the founder of a New York-based ad agency which represents brands that are not official sponsors but plan to air commercials during the Olympics. He says his clients decided to strip from their campaign's mentions of traditional Olympic themes, friendly competition, global unity, and good sportsmanship shortly after the Biden administration announced it was doing a diplomatic boycott 
of the Winter Olympics. Bridgestone, an official sponsor of the International Olympic Committee, this month began airing a commercial featuring a U.S. figure skater, an Asian-American, who advocates for authentic representation in skating. Delta Airlines, the official airline of Team USA, is airing two commercials spotlighting skiers, snowboarders, and figure skaters who defy gravity in their events. The German bank Allianz will have a film featuring winter athletes playing on social media here in the United States. When Reuters asked the Global and Team USA sponsors about marketing plans for the Olympics, only two responded, one of which declined to comment. It's, of course, a big departure from Olympics past. With the political controversy and the pandemic once again preventing spectators from traveling to the games, voters or viewers this time can expect to see fewer mentions of the host city, according to uh, another ad agency director. It's a challenge, quite frankly, he said. The connection isn't as prevalent as it would normally be. Focusing on the athletes is considered the safest strategy for brands, experts said. We're trying to steer clear of the geopolitical implications around the Olympics, says the chief marketing officer of Chipotle. It's running ads during the Olympics, promoting real food for real athletes. Any attempt for a brand to associate themselves with the Beijing Olympics itself could backfire, said one of the advertising agency heads. You just don't know. You put the commercial on, and it might explode. And the Beijing Winter Olympics could affect the timing of any Russian invasion of Ukraine, according to U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, adding Chinese President Xi Jinping would not be happy if the two events were to coincide. Says a scholar at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, when choosing who to upset, it's either a bad week or two of press in the U.S. versus a very real and justified fear that you lose market access in China, speaking of potential advertisers. Hey, it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one every day. Who knew running around could be so controversial? Now, um, follow-up on something we've uh, been pestering you about on this program in the last little while. And it's the uh, story of what happens when 5G signals come into conflict with the signals of altimeters on aircraft that are trying to land. This week, an estimated 90% of the United States commercial aircraft fleet fleet, has now been approved by the FAA to fly into airports that use radio altimeters in low visibility conditions. 90% if 5G cellular towers are up nearby, that's up from 78% last week if 5G-C cellular towers aren't present. There are no restrictions. That said, the FAA ruled Boeing 747-8, 747-8F, and 777 aircraft are not allowed to land at some airports. 
due to what's described as an additional hazard presented by 5G C-band interference. C-band is a frequency band. Um, a couple of years ago, it was being used, up until a couple of years ago, it was being used by television broadcasters for satellite transmissions. Then they skedaddled when the uh, FCC made a lot of money selling those frequencies to your AT&T, your Sprint, your T-Mobile. And uh, since then, nothing has been said about this until a couple of weeks ago. And all of a sudden, oops. Now, the FAA determined that anomalies due to 5G C-band interference may affect multiple airplane systems using radio altimeter data, including the pitch control laws, including control laws that provide tail strike protection, regardless of the approach type or weather, the FAA said. These anomalies may not be evident until very low altitudes, like, look out! This particular ruling affects an estimated 336 Boeing planes in the U.S., and 1,700 worldwide. The directive does not apply to landings at airports where the FAA determined the aircraft altimeters are safe and reliable in the 5G C-band environment. It also does not apply to airports where 5G isn't deployed. Larger airports, JFK, LAX, SFO, are not affected by any of this doing be, uh, being 5G C-band free zones. The U.S. stands almost alone. Oh, this is reported from uh, the Register, British Tech Journal. The U.S. stands almost alone in its concerns about 5G-C and its potential harm to aviation systems. Europe, U.K. have cleared flights for landing and takeoff. Japan has said interference isn't an issue so long as 5G-C base stations are kept 200 meters from approach paths. The Japanese have the advantage of knowing how far 500 meters actually is. So you can ask the Japanese if you want to know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, an entirely different subject comes to the fore on this edition of the show, and it's our friend the Atom. Clean, safe. News of our friend the Adam, as I say, after decades of prevarication, that means lying, Politico calls it prevarication, Sweden this week decided on a final storage plan. Oh, I think they don't even mean prevarication then. I think they mean delay. Sweden decided on a final storage plan for the nuclear waste, its nuclear waste, that is, becoming only the second country in the world to take such a step after Finland. Yes, the Nordics are leading us again, or the Norse, or the Swedes and Finns. Environment Minister of Sweden told a news conference that permission had been granted to build a facility to package and store spent nuclear fuel at a coastal site near the Forsmark nuclear power plant. It's about an hour's drive north of Stockholm. Yes, at a coastal site, so if anything goes wrong... 
It's just the ocean that's affected. It's been a long process to get where we now stand, the uh, environment minister said. It's been one of the most closely examined issues the government has ever looked at. Uh, unquote. The decision is significant. It confirms Sweden's position as a global leader, Tom, global leader, in the storage of nuclear waste. As I say, Finland, the only other country to decide on such a plan, it's building a storage facility across the Gulf of Bothnia, not Bosnia, Bothnia from Forsmark. Like the Forsmark project, the Finnish plan was based on a process developed by Swedish researchers. The method is referred to as KBS-3, easy to remember, will see the spent nuclear fuel stored in copper containers surrounded by bentonite clay placed in 500 tunnels that will be 1,640 feet, about a third of a mile, under the ground. The aim is to keep the radioactive waste isolated for at least 100,000 years. Well, why don't you just send COVID down there? That'll keep them isolated. Quote, the method has been researched for a long time, said the environment minister. It's been carefully developed and well prepared, unquote. But there has been criticism of the KBS-3 method over recent years, including by researchers who have suggested that copper may not be as resistant to corrosion as the method assumes, meaning the risk of leaks could be higher than expected. The relevant authority, the Swedish Radiation Safety Authority, though, according to the environment minister, had judged the method safe. It's a big step forward if it uh, works out in a long-running saga. Since the 1970s, Swedish authorities, like their counterparts in nuclear power-dependent states the world over, have been seeking a solution for the final, i.e. permanent, storage of nuclear waste, scouring the country for suitable sites, while also tasking researchers to develop Safe methods. Those would be nice. It took until 2011 for an application to be made by the company SKB, a nuclear nuclear waste manager owned by the people who produce nuclear power in Sweden. They have a vested interest, you'd think, for planning permission at Forsmark. Since then, lengthy consultations have been had with interested parties, scientists to residents, Late last year, the process became more politically divisive when two opposition parties pushed the government to make a decision on the application and threatened the environment minister with a no-confidence vote if she didn't apply. At the same time, the Green Party, which quit the government, said the process was being rushed and more time was needed for research. The environment minister said research would continue to optimize the process and ensure it is as safe as possible, but added that the question of nuclear waste storage could not be pushed into the future indefinitely. Today we have the knowledge and technology, said the environment minister, which means we don't need to pass this responsibility on to our children and grandchildren, she said. Only the responsibility for what happens if the technology don't work and the copper starts to corrode. That's children and grandchildren... You got that. And the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, apologized this week for Greece's unpreparedness to deal with the impact of a severe snowstorm. Well, this is an apology. And I think this got uh, miscategorized. So we'll deal with him 
in a little while. But right now, ladies and gentlemen, next on this program, for your listening pleasure, News of the Godly. Always fun. Back to the story of uh, the Archdiocese of Munich, which have been in the news last couple weeks, and therefore you've no doubt heard about it. The Archbishop, Cardinal Reinhard Marx, said he accepted responsibility for his role in a documented history of sexual abuse in the Diocese of Munich and Freising in Bavaria. He was speaking at the Catholic Academy in Munich this week. He acknowledged several times he had personally not done enough to help victims, saying, quote, that is unforgivable. All right, you're not forgiven then. Oh, no, he went on. We were not really interested in their suffering. The way I see it, that also had to do with systemic issues. At the same time, as archbishop, I bear moral responsibility, unquote. He once again asked victims for forgiveness, personally and in the name of the diocese. He appealed to Catholics who doubt the church, who can no longer trust those in authority and whose faith has been damaged. For too long, we have failed to focus sufficiently on and involve parishes where perpetrators were posted. Unquote Marx. He underscored the urgency of dealing with the issue in stark terms. Quote, there is no future for Christianity in our country without a renewed church. For me, the reappraisal of sexual abuse is part of a fundamental renewal. Unquote. His words come just days after that damning report on the history of sexual abuse of children and minors in the diocese, outlining crimes against at least 497 victims since the end of the war, uh, World War II. The report, prepared by a law firm, says that some 235 perpetrators were involved in the crimes. That's a lot of perpetrators in one diocese, don't you think? Investigators believe, though, that the true number of incidents of abuse is far higher. Quote, anyone who still denies the systemic causes or disputes the need for reform of the church has failed to understand the challenge before us, Mark said in response to the findings of that law firm. And Francis the Talking Pope this week called on parents around the world to not condemn children if they are gay. He addressed parents who see that their children have different sexual orientations, how they manage that and accompany their children, and not hide behind a condemning attitude. Never, he concluded, condemn a child. That's interesting. I was I had really good parents, but uh, every once in a while, you know, little a little loving condemnation, not because I was not because of any sexual anything. Church teachings consider homosexual activity quote intrinsically disordered, according to USA Today, though it calls for gay and lesbian people to be respected. Pope has also called gay and transgender people of God, and he's endorsed civil unions. Try to see if you can make sense of this. Quote, homosexual people have the right to be in a family. They are children of God, he said in an interview for a 2020 documentary. Quote, you can't kick someone out of a family nor make their life miserable for this. What we have to have is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. Unquote. Francis, Pope Francis. Last year, the Vatican said the Catholic Church and its priests cannot bless 
same-sex unions because God, quote, cannot bless sin, unquote. Quoting the Vatican's Orthodoxy Office, there are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family. That's in a two-page statement that was approved by Francis. I think condemnation, condemnation would be better than that. You know, just clearer, let's put it that way. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this very broadcast. And now, a word from the future. Direct from the trading floor of Corium Slogum Oliver, this is Mind Your Own Business. I'm Mike Tuchinello on the virtual trading floor. The real one's in storage. In the conventional markets, stocks and bonds, volatility is good for business. When asset prices go up and down, people buy and sell, riding alternative waves of greed and fear. But with last year's influx of so-called retail investors who get into the markets via Reddit or other Internet sources, volatility can be bad. One big dive in prices can discourage them from any further involvement. After all, one good definition of a retail investor is one who thinks markets only go in one direction, up. Newer kinds of investments may have similar problems or not. The person behind one such asset class is joining Sylvia Mealargent today at the Money Honey Desk. Thanks, Mike. This week, cryptocurrencies had their own big price drops, but at least one believer wasn't worried because his new cryptocurrency isn't for sale yet. Griff Lauder is the man behind Musk Coin. Griff, you're still, I guess you could say, bullish on yourself. I'd say bullseye to that, Sylvia. <laughs> Those of us at SureThings.com, all eight of us, think the sky's the limit for Musk coin. Anyone who doesn't is violating our code of confidence. By the way, we're the first in the industry to have such a code. I'm very proud of that. Well, there are reports that expressing anything less than full confidence in the prospects of Musk coin is a firing offense at SureThings.com. Well, there are reports that the moon landing was fake, too. Maybe next question. Some critics on and off Reddit have said that people could be misled by the name of your cryptocurrency. Or you mean be simply because the richest man in the world is not directly a part of our project? That's the suggestion. Uh -huh. And that's like saying the Tesla car is misleading because the great inventor Nikola Tesla has nothing to do with it. I, I don't think anybody would be quicker to pick up on that point than the richest man in the world. Or his lawyers. Okay. Well, why is Musk coin different, or maybe even better, than other cryptocurrencies? Well, all of our other competitors, our Bitcoin, Ethereum, have nothing to base the value of their currencies on, which is why their prices fluctuate so wildly. Musk coin takes inspiration from our namesake by basing its value on something large and valuable and not prone to scary sweeps up and down. And what is that? Mars. Our big innovation is a piece of software that has assessed the value of the elements in the Martian soil down to the maximum mineable level. You know how much lithium there is in just one Martian sea? Well, but until there's human activity on Mars, that lithium isn't available to us, is it? 
Exactly. That's the built-in upward driver of the Musk coin. The closer we get to getting closer, the more Mars is worth. Unless we somehow blow up the planet, the price of a Musk coin can never go down. Well, speaking of the richest man in the world, mm-hmm. has he gotten in contact with SureThings.com personally? Yeah, that's part of the exciting part. He sent us a text saying he was honored and was going to start accepting Musk coin in payment for his cars. Well, that's And the- then he sent another text saying he couldn't accept it in payment, but he was even more honored. Well, that must be a big boost. Then he sent a registered letter that he wasn't honored at all. So clearly we're on his radar. Although I'm sure he's thinking up something way cooler than radar. So, Griff, when does Musk coin make its debut on crypto exchanges? Uh, certainly it doesn't need any regulatory approval. No. As uh, soon as our application for a Swiss bank account clears, we're ready to drop our first digital ad featuring five recently retired pro golfers. Well, I wouldn't think those endorsers would necessarily be relevant to the most likely crypto adopters, young people. Ah, but think about it, Sylvia. What says no volatility better than golf? Griff Lauder. Good luck with Musk Coin. From the Money Honey Desk, I'm Sylvia Meal-Argent. And that's Mind Your Own Business for today. From the virtual trading floor, I'm Mike Tuchinello saying, as always, this week, mind the business of someone you love. So long. Those fingers in my hair That sly come hither stare That strips my conscience bare It's witchcraft And I've got no defense for it The heat is too intense for it What good would common sense for it do? Cause it's witchcraft Wicked witchcraft And although I know It's strictly taboo When you arouse the need in me My heart says yes indeed in me Proceed with what you're leading me to It's such an ancient pitch But one I wouldn't switch Cause there's no nicer witch than you What you're leading me to 
It's such an ancient pitch But one that I'd never switch Cause there's no nicer witch than you From New Orleans, this is Le Show, and now... We've got the ultra-modern knack Of getting oil from the deepest crack So give the boys just a bit of slack And say a hearty what the frack Elderly people, like me, living near or downwind of unconventional oil and gas development. That's called UOGD, unconventional oil and gas development, which involves extraction methods, including non-vertical drilling, horizontal drilling, and hydraulic fracking, are at higher risk, people, these elderly people living near that kind of oil drilling, are at higher risk of early death compared with elderly individuals who don't live near such operations. That's according to a large new study from the Harvard School of Public Health. The results suggest that airborne contaminants emitted by such oil and gas methods and transported downwind are contributing to increased mortality. The uh, researchers wrote the study would uh, will be published in Nature Energy, but they write... Although UOGD is a major industrial activity in the U.S., very little is known about its public health impacts. Our study is the first to link mortality to UOGD-related air pollutant exposures. That's the senior author of the study. Uh, added his co-author, there's an urgent need to understand the causal link between living near or downwind of UOGD and adverse health effects. Unquote. Uh, these methods of oil Exploration and extraction have expanded rapidly over the last decade. As of 2015, according to the study, more than 100,000 land-based wells were drilled using directional drilling combined with fracking. Roughly 17.6 million U.S. residents currently live within a kilometer, a kilometer, ladies and gentlemen, of at least one active well. Compared with conventional oil and gas drilling, these procedures normally involve longer construction periods and larger well pads, areas occupied by equipment or facilities, and require larger volumes of water. Propants, that's sand or other materials used to keep hydraulic fractures open, and chemicals during the fracking process. Prior studies have found connections between UOGD activities and increased human exposure to harmful substances in both air and water, as well as connections between these kinds of oil drilling procedures and adverse prenatal respiratory cardiovascular and carcinogenic health outcomes. That's all. Nothing, nothing to see there. What the frack? Uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, just one word, microplastics. 
the great diversity of scientific techniques and methods used in the study of marine microplastics pollution limits the current knowledge of this serious environmental problem. This according to scientists at the University of Barcelona. Hey, we're back in Catalan, Catalan, Catalonia again. That was the main conclusion of a study carried out by the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology at the University of Barcelona. It reviews the research carried out to measure the presence of microplastics in the coastal areas and seawater of the Mediterranean, both in the sea surface water, seawater column, and in marine sediments. Conclusions show that the levels of microplastics in the Mediterranean are probably higher than estimated. Well, that's just another estimate, isn't it? But the methods used are not capable of recording them accurately. So, we don't know. Why don't we just leave it at that? And now, ladies and gentlemen... So sorry. A long fade every once in a while is a good thing, don't you think? Greek, here we go. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis apologized on Wednesday for the state's unpreparedness to deal with the impact of a severe snowstorm that brought transport in Athens to a halt and left thousands of drivers stranded on a main city motorway this week. Heavy snow is rare in the Greek capital country has now been hit by extreme weather for a second consecutive winter. Something must be happening. I would like to start with a personal and sincere apology to our federal, uh, to our fellow citizens who suffered for many hours trapped on the main highway, Mitsotakis said at the beginning of a cabinet meeting. There were mistakes and shortcomings which have to be fixed. The government declared Tuesday and Wednesday a public holiday in the wider Athens region and other areas hit by the storm. The uh, president, or no, the prime minister said responsibility lay with the operator of the motorway, the Atiki, but also pledged to improve coordination among government authorities and boost climate crisis defenses. It is true that a Mediterranean country's infrastructure is not always adapted to conditions of heavy snowfall, he said. It's equally true that the state mechanism is not yet at the point of readiness that phenomena of such great intensity require, unquote. The British Foreign Office's top civil servant has apologized for giving inaccurate answers to members of parliament about evacuating animals during the fall of Kabul. Sir Philip Barton said he had inadvertently misled a committee investigating why animals got out of Afghanistan before people in the UK process. Emails leaked to the committee show Foreign Office staff suggesting Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, had authorized the evacuation of animals and charity staff. Sir Philip admitted he had given MPs incorrect information on this. The Prime Minister denies any involvement in the decision to evacuate animals looked after by a charity that is run by an ex-Royal Marine, Penn Farthing. No, I don't either. About 15,000 people were lifted out of the Afghan capital as the uh, Taliban took control. Farthing and 150 animals left Kabul airport on a chartered plane paid for by donations. The UK government sponsored clearance for the flight leading to a row over whether the animals had been prioritized 
over people. Uh, that Sir Philip Varden said was uh, appearing before a Commons Select Committee. He was asked if he knew whether the Prime Minister had intervened in the evacuation of the animals. He replied, not to my knowledge. But this was contradicted in leaked emails published by the committee the next day. Following these revelations, Sir Philip said a note to the committee saying, I am writing to apologize for the inadvertently inaccurate answers given to your questions. Downing Street continues to deny that the Prime Minister had any involvement with the evacuations of the animals. The incoming leader of a Georgetown Law School Research Institute has apologized after facing backlash for a series of now-deleted tweets about President Biden's promise to nominate a black woman for the Supreme Court that the school's dean has called appalling. Ilya Shapiro is set to begin his new role as executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution this week, less than a week before his commitment, uh, sorry, his comments on Biden's potential pick for the high court have driven frustration from many in the community. And that's not the dwarfism community. Objectively, best pick for Biden. Uh, he names a person who is of Asian descent, Indian descent, but alas, doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy, so we get la lesser black women, Shapiro confirmed. Continued, He added, Biden will only consider a black woman to fill Breyer's seat. His, his nominee will therefore always have an asterisk attached, unquote. Shapiro made similar remarks about identity following Sonia Sotomayor's nomination to the high court in 2009. He did not immediately return a request for comment. In a tweet Thursday, he wrote, I apologize. I meant no offense, but it was an inartful tweet. I have taken it down. The Georgetown spokesperson declined to comment on his remarks, citing a policy against speaking on personnel matters. But the dean condemned the remarks. The tweets are at odds with everything we stand for at Georgetown. All right, then. Dateline Atlanta, an Atlanta restaurant apologized on social media after a customer said that a restaurant denied them service. A customer said that restaurant denied them service for wearing a skirt or skirts. As the metro area is home to a large LGBTQ, LGBTQ community, the guests considered it shocking and humiliating, I identify as he, she, they. So all pronouns are okay, Paco Zolonsky said. He just, they just wanted to join his friend's birthday dinner at a restaurant called the Monticello. He showed up but did not make it, according to WGCL-TV in Atlanta. I went ahead and showed my ID, and he was saying, well, it's not what it looks like on your ID. I mean, I, I'm like, 
I'm like, what do you mean? I just took that picture. I know it looks like me. I may have gained a little weight, but it's still me, laughed Zelensky. It was no laughing matter. What happened next? He said the photo was not the problem. It was his attire. TikTok video of the incident shows him in a red skirt, black shirt, and a jacket on top. Red and black? What is this, chess? A man who appears to be Monticello staff explains the issue, saying, we are not denying him service. What we're saying is he must dress his gender. If he dresses his gender, he's more than welcome to come inside. Management issued a public apology on its social media site, saying in part the incident does not represent its policies and procedures. In its social media post, management added staff will undergo sensitivity training and the employee involved, uh, yes, the employee involved received disciplinary action. He has to come to work in a skirt for five days. No, just. I should be able to walk into this in this world and not be scared that because I'm wearing a dress, people are going to treat me differently, Zolansky said. Yes, and there should be world peace. Dateline Moorhead, Minnesota. The Postal Service is apologizing to Moorhead area residents who say they've been waiting several days for mail deliveries and home pickup service. Local management is aware of delivery issues in Moorhead and is taking steps to address the concerns, according to the post office spokesman, Desai Abdul Razak. We appreciate the patience of our customers and the efforts of employees during challenging times. Some residents say they've waited as long as five days between mail deliveries and their homes. Local postal workers say they've been working up to 60 hours each week to keep up with demand. Our workforce, like others, is not immune to the human impacts of coronavirus, says the spokesperson for the post office. We apologize for any inconvenience that may have been experienced. I think that's the... um, That's the the boilerplate apology, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to be frank about that. I don't think they actually wrote that. The CEO of ID.me apologized this week for mischaracterizing the facial recognition system the company uses to verify people's identity. Civil liberties groups were already displeased that the IRS was using the private company system, which many states have adopted as a means to to fight unemployment assistance fraud. The IRS has begun requiring that taxpayers use ID.me to verify their identity before performing certain actions online. The plan was announced last November. It has gained widespread attention and criticism recently. In an interview with Axios.com, Blake Hall described ID.me's system as purely a one-to-one verification which users' video selfies are compared to official documents, such as a driver's license. He contrasted ID.me with other facial recognition systems that compare photos against a a database, like Clearview AI. He likened ID.me's system to a bank teller checking photo ID when someone opens an account. However, he acknowledged in a LinkedIn post that it also uses Amazon's recognition technology, with a K, to compare the video selfie submitted to its own internal database to identify people who are applying, say, using multiple names. I apologize for that, Hall told Axios.com. My intent is never to mislead. The disclosure came only after an ID.me employee criticized the company on an internal Slack thread for doing one thing and saying another. 
I'll insist the process of checking against a database is a key tool. Well, that's, by the way, disclosed to government partners, but not to the public, is a key tool for fighting fraud. He says only a tiny fraction of selfies submitted are flagged by the system. Even those people have a chance to prove they are who they say they are. The disclosure, according to Axios, highlights concerns already raised by civil liberty advocates around the lack of federal legislation, establishing guardrails and limits on the use of facial recognition technology. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and the city attorney this week addressed a controversy surrounding a training presentation for police officers. It's a slide from a few years ago, including a meme of an officer hitting a protester. The picture is not of a Portland officer. The city released it to the public ahead of a hearing in a lawsuit regarding 2020 protests. The Department of Justice lawyers have criticized the city for not sharing the presentation and information with them before it releases to the public. This week, the city attorney and the mayor apologized. Quote, I take responsibility for balancing the competing issues that I had in my mind at the time. If I had that to do over again, I would have done it differently and accept responsibility for that. And I apologize for that, said the city attorney. The BBC has apologized over its coverage of an anti-Semitic hate incident in central London following an internal investigation. The BBC's Executive Complaints Unit, the ECU, investigated both the BBC website article and a broadcast report that critics said victim blamed a bus full of Jewish students who were abused on London's Oxford Street shopping district while celebrating Hanukkah. ECU concluded the broadcast did not breach editorial standards, but partly it upheld the complaints over a lack of accuracy and impartiality. A video of the attack filmed inside the bus circulated on social media. They showed a group of men approaching the bus from the sidewalk hitting the bus with their fists, throwing objects at it, spitting on it, and shouting anti-Israel slogans, including Free Palestine. BBC published an article on its website about the attack and included an unverified claim that an anti-Muslim slur could be heard on the video. The article also described the attack as an alleged anti-Semitic incident. A subsequent investigation carried out by two digital investigative agencies concluded that no such slur was uttered. Um, it was a misunderstanding of the Hebrew phrase for call someone, it's urgent. BBC refused to retract or retra- apologize over the article until this week. Complaints over that report were then relayed to an internal executive complaints unit. The report doesn't say whether any of the staff or editors who processed the story were Hebrew speakers. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Three and.
gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Program returns next week in the same time slot over these same radio stations. <laughs> radio. And uh, on your audio device of choice, whenever you want it. And it would be just like me promising to pardon the January 6th protesters. If you'd agree with to be with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show show up to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO in New Orleans. The email address for this program, yes, email still in 2022, still. The playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts, all at harryshearer.com. And there's so much more there, too. I can't even begin. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Sharer. The show comes to you from Century of Pro- <laughs> I'm going to get these dentures replaced first thing. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City. <laughs>